0: Good morning, um, my specs have just broken, <laughs> and I haven't, any, I haven't got any of that cellotype stuff. No, it's alright, it's okay, I can manage, I, I've managed with one eye before. <laughs> I'm going to talk about uh, a book I've written called The Book of Books, it's called The Book of Books because it's a book about the King James Bible, which has often been called The Book of Books because it is. There are 66 books in the King James Bible, they're contradictory, they're confusing, they can support almost any argument you want to put forward, and also it's opposite. Uh, They are lush in their contradictions, uh, and that is part, I think, of their ongoing, still ongoing, strength. There used to be 80 books, 14 were cut out, called the Apocrypha, by the Spoilsports, a century or two ago. These are are the 66 books. I wanted to write it because uh, the King James Bible Quattrocentenia is coming up. It is now, 400 years ago since this book was published, this particular book of the Bible, the King James Bible. I was brought up as a Christian, uh, and between about six to 18, I was at church more often than I can remember, in choir, reading, at, at the altar, in Sunday school, at the AYPA, the Anglican Young People's Association, onward, advance, all that. Uh, and that's a layer of my life which then is eroded. It started in when I was 18 or 19 in that wonderful time in your life. The only time in your life for about six months you know everything, it's great isn't it? <laughs> and then after that, the rest of your life is discovering, and in my case, you know less and less and less and less. So you try to find out more and more and it gets worse and worse. It's Smith myth of Sisyphus really. Anyway, so that was that. It doesn't go away. I don't believe in a personal God, I don't believe in the resurrection. But I do respect mightily the good things, the great things this Bible and the church has achieved. And it's my tribe, as Martin Rees said, who is a former president of the Royal Society, master of Trinity College, astronomer royal. It's my tribe, and I like going to churches now and then. I particularly like Choral Evensong, which is an indulgence in the great cathedrals in this country. It's like nothing else on earth, and very often the choir outnumbers the congregation, and I have no idea why we aren't all going all the time. It's the most amazing music. Right, that's that. That's me done with, so that's it. Uh, and the, but the reason I wanted to write this book was, was a curious one. People have written about how the book was put together, the King James Bible, and I will mention that, and it's important that we know about that. It's an important story, and I think that story actually hasn't been properly told. Well, there you go, that's, what, that's what you, the sort of things you can say when you come at something as an amateur. It's the rights of the amateur historian. Um, but I do. But more importantly than that, much more importantly than that, I, was, I found myself, to my surprise, Because when we have these layers, I had this Christian layer and then, we're all seven cities or 77 cities of Troy, aren't we? One layer above another layer of your life and another layer of your life. And you can press them down and press them down as much as you like, but they don't go away. And if you want to sink a shaft down to bring back, as I did in this case, memories of, emotional memories of, as well as literal memories of Christianity, you can do that. Uh, And if you don't, sometimes it erupts and, volcanically disturbs the rest of your life, but that's another book and another story. Nevertheless, it was there. And I was thinking of how to react to this, because it was a big event. It became a big event in my head. And I wanted to talk about how the book, and then a lot of people talk about how the book's come about, how it's been made, and they've written very well of it. Um, But what made me extremely angry when I started to look around and read stuff was that The King James Bible, the impact of the King James Bible, outside its impact as a book of faith, has been more or less airbrushed from our history. When you look at it, as I do, and I hope I convince you, over the last 400 years, the King James Bible, outside its work as a book of faith, has triggered, catalyzed and enabled two or three of the greatest things, the greatest things that have happened, not only in the last 400 years, but in world history. I truly, I don't only really believe that, I think I can prove that. And other things besides, which airbrushed brushed out. Because we look at the past through a secular prism, we think the past was always like us, which is the most terrible mistake you can ever make. And because the secularism is so rampant at the moment, they have the microphone, atheists have the megaphone, because that's where we are, and that's where we are. We think that the past must bend itself toward the way we think the way we look at things, what our appreciation of things, or non-appreciation of things, is, it couldn't be more wrong. You read histories over the last 400 years and the Bible scarcely mentioned. And you no, know, hold on, the King James Bible was there. The King James Bible maintained these women, these men. That's why they did it, because what they found in the... And so I wanted to perform an act, if you want, of restoration. Uh, and angrily to put it back, because it's to do with our history. There's two books, aren't there? There's the Book of Faith. It was written as a book of faith. It was written for faith. It was written to proselytise the Protestant religion in the English-speaking community. And whether you like it or not, or believe in it or not, is neither here nor that. It was an incredible success. It went through the British Empire, the American Empire, round the world, in many ways, for better and for worse. Of course it's for better and for worse. It's always for better and for worse. And of course, wicked things were done in its name. They're always done in its name. And that's another thing I want to expunge. The idea that the Bible, which is that the Christian religion and the Bible is uniquely wicked. It's rubbish. What's uniquely wicked is us. Men, usually. We are uniquely <laughs> wicked. I mean, to talk about the Bible, it pours into less than insignificance. The biggest massacres in the history of the world, proportionally, were in the eighth century China, when 36 million people, then between the sixth and the quarter of the entire population of the world, were wiped out. Nothing to do with Christianity. The Mongols in How high Middle Ages knocked out 40 million people in the most horrible way. Nothing to do with Christianity. In the last century, have you tried to bend it with Stalin, and Hitler, and Pol Pot, and Mao? No, there's anything to do with Christianity, and they destroyed, what, 100, 130 million people? Starved others to death? Nothing to do with Christianity? The idea that it's unique, you could, is ridiculous. Powerful men take any ideology, and particularly religions, which gives them an aura, a feeling of destiny, a feeling of being chosen. They take anything they can get hold of to increase their power, and outreach their power. And often, religions give them an emotional drive, which they can't get anywhere else, which their statutes, their regulations, their torturing, their authoritarianism doesn't get them. But if they're doing it because of a higher calling, because they, like Augustus in Rome, are a god, or like the pharaohs are gods, or like the Aztecs were gods. If they can say they were gods and doing it, and they're doing it uh, on behalf of a god, then they, they have an extra charisma. Otherwise, they do it on behalf of a theory. So I don't think the, in, the excessive Attention paid to undoubted wickednesses in the Bible and their pathological God in the Old Testament is just that is pathological On the other hand the interesting thing is why is he pathological? I mean they're just as clever as we are these people and they've got a pathological God Uh, The Greeks had the Greeks had pathological gods They had terrible gods when you actually what did they get up to and you think well maybe that's very interesting Why did they want it to be like that? Maybe they wanted the gods to be more like them and not a different immortal invisible God only wise person, but that's a different book so there's that too, and one more thing before I get going, I better get going, because <laughs> <laughs> it usually Usually takes an hour this, and I've been told 45 minutes and I get my throat cut, and that's fine. So I'm going to rush it a bit, there we go. Um, one more thing, I think it's only one more thing, yes, one more thing is this, and this is probably the most important thing I want to say before I get cracking, and it's this. And it's related to what I was saying before. When Einstein was asked what was the most important thing to him, about his becoming the great scientist. He didn't say his teachers, although he was always generous to his teachers. He didn't say Isaac Newton, although he thought Newton's was the greatest mind that there had ever been. He said, imagination, above all, imagination. And I read history at university, and I've read a lot, read as much as I can since, or be it anyway, and in fact, caused three facts, an archaeological, in, in the text and so on, you had get, absolutely that's, but imagination. Now we have to imagine, or this won't make any sense at all, that people just as clever as us, and in some cases like Newton and Shakespeare and Chaucer and Christopher Wren and Francis Bacon at the court of King James and so on, until fairly recently, absolutely believed that the Old Testament was the whole and entire history of the world delivered by God. They believed that. And that the New Testament was the revelation of God's son sent to this earth, who was resurrected, and then he ascended into heaven, and he ruled on the right hand. They believed that. And in that context, they erected the most amazing intellectual structures. But that was their belief. And it was that important, and it was that routine, and it was that essential. And unless we can grasp that, then most of what I'm saying doesn't make any real sense. It was the power, it was intellectual underpinning, and it was the dynamo. Right. The first thing that was really important about this Bible, about the Bible, was to to get it translated into English in the first place. B, translated a chapter of St. John, we've lost it. Alfred did a bit, but it doesn't matter. 14th century started with John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was an Oxford scholar. It's largely an Oxford story to start with. And he was a a brilliant, uh, what we might call Europe, just for the sake of convenience. A brilliant European scholar, a deep Roman Catholic, he hated the abuses in the church. He thought the church was too rich. He didn't say that in the New Testament. He thought that the bishops were too powerful. There weren't bishops in the, in the New Testament. He, thought that he actually thought that celibacy was ridiculous and also dangerous because it would lead to immorality and so on, so he was, but he was protected by John of Gaunt, the most powerful man in England and lived just across the road, the Savoy Palace. And across the river, <laughs> gosh, gotta get this right. Mustn't rush, uh, and um, and he wanted to translate the Bible into English. So he set about it. He set up a school of scholars, you can still see the libraries in Oxford. The same libraries, same benches, they copied it out. It's pre-printing, copied it out. Lushed it around themselves, went around the country, took it to secret houses, it was read, it was copied again, copied it in English. And then he was put on a show trial at Black Friars, just down the river, across the river, <laughs> Black Friars, in 1381. And he was found guilty of the most heinous crimes putting this book into English. And if it hadn't been for John O'Gaunt, he would have been sentenced to death, but he was saved and put under house arrest and died a broken man two years later. Fifty years later, the church authorities dug up his bones and burnt them, so that when the last Trump called, his body would not be able to join his soul in paradise. They burnt him. Meanwhile, the young men, called the Lollards, kept going around the country. These were young Oxford men, which we think of in the Middle Ages as prim, self-seeking, self-serving, pompous, Privileged persons, maybe some of them were, but these weren't. These men, like him, wanted the Bible to be in English. And they took it around the country. And in the last third of the 15th century, for instance, we have records that over 150 of these young men were captured, tortured, and burnt to death. Many more were captured and tortured, and many more were captured and somehow or other paid their way out of it. It was very dangerous work. Why? Why? It seems nonsense to us. Especially at a time when the English language was burgeoning. This was our release moment. This was a fantastic moment at the end of the 14th century. In 1066, Harold Godwinson was crowned King of England across the river, Westminster Abbey. Uh, In English, it took 333 years before the next King of England was crowned in English in that Abbey. In between that, it was Norman French, Paris French and a bit of Latin. The English language suppressed, went underground, wasn't in poetry, wasn't in documents, wasn't in law, wasn't anywhere except among the people, except in the streets and the fields. After Henry V's wars, and at the end of the, towards the end of the 14th century, it came through again. It began to be used again. If we pick on a particular person, Chaucer, who wrote in Italian and French and Latin, as you know, and (laughs) I'm sick of this really, but he actually was employed across the river. Um, (laughs) uh, Chaucer. And it's terrible that it's true as well, isn't it? Um, Chaucer decided to write in English. His great work, Canterbury Tales, never been out of print. Printing was around there, never been out of print. Uh, and one that April with the shortest of the draught of marsh is in English, and English goes. And then, quite soon, Philip Sidney is saying, English hath it with every other language in the world. This suppressed language, which had been kept down and kept down, suddenly erupted, volcanically, astonishingly, they, people in this country, wanted their own language. It had always been unique in wanting to write its own language, as well as copying things out in Latin. In the Lindisfarne Gospels, you'll remember, the great Latin, Gothic character, little brown ink English, of it, little brown ink English at the top, writing it then. Unique in Europe, the vernacular being used in that way. And it came through. And this is the time, and Wycliffe was part of it. But why didn't they want him to have the Bible in English? Because of power. Very simple. Because of power. Power, one of the things that power is based on, apart from getting there and and slaughtering people and elbows and lies and cheating and authoritarianism and torture and that sort of thing. It's based on being exclusive. If you have exclusive hold of something, and particularly knowledge. Now the priesthood, in this country, as in other countries, had exclusive hold of a sort of Latin. It had been, the, the, when Constantine made it the official language of the, Holy, of, the, of the Roman Empire, it was spoken all over the place. And then the Holy Roman Empire, Empire kept it up, um, uh, and, but then it dwindled away in the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, and the vernaculars began to come through. But this, the sacred... The men who owned it, the men at the top of the church, powerful men, princes, as we know from Renaissance Italy. We don't have to go to Renaissance Italy. Here in this country as well, the great abbeys and monasteries, enormous wealth, enormous, but the aristocracy just moved into the church. It was as simple as that. It was a cadet branch of the aristocracy. They took over these great lands of the abbeys and monasteries, and they all ran them. If you look at them, who were the abbesses? Were The daughters of the aristocracy, and so on. That's what happened. Um, and they held it, and they wouldn't let the people in. If the people knew what was being said, they would have power. So they were behind screens. They mumbled the mass. Their little Latin slipped out. That was all. If you wanted to know anything about what happened in your religion, you looked at the stained glass windows. Or later, you saw the mystery plays in York. But you didn't hear the words. You didn't hear what God had said. <laughs> you didn't really hear what Christ had said. On the other hand, you had the state. They wanted power too. And their power was in the language of Norman French or Latin. They didn't want it released. So these two powerful, powerful and interrelated power, religion and politics in that, in that time were often the same thing. Wanted to stop language going out because it didn't want us to be part of it. This has been part of our history. They didn't want us to have our language. They didn't want us to have a vote. They took hundred years to have a then, And they didn't, when I said us, in the, first, the second emphasis was on men, of course. And first, certainly, they didn't want women to have the vote. And the things they wrote about how the world would end, scandal, confusion, dreadfulness and on the whole, things have got better since this happened. But they didn't want it to happen. They held it and held it and held it as long as they could. This was the same here. So there was Wycliffe and there it was going round. But it went round. That's the important thing. And the next major man to come, or my major man, my major figure in this, is a man called William Tyndall. Rich young man, uh, went to Oxford. And by the time he was about 22, we know that he knew Latin and Greek, and French and Italian and German as Anglo-Saxon and Syriac. And he was the first, supposed to be one of the first, if not the first man in Europe, to teach himself Hebrew. He saw great correspondences between Hebrew and Anglo-Saxon, which was very important for him when he did his translations. He wanted, from the time he was a young boy, the Book of God, to be in English, available to the English people. He just wanted that to happen. So he started to translate when he was quite young. And we've had two, we've had the great luck in this country with our language. First of all, there was a great eruption after the suppressed silence with Chaucer. And then you have a genius of imagination who comes along quite soon, that's Shakespeare, but we also have a man who influenced Shakespeare mightily, a genius of translation, William Tyndall. William Tyndall was not a translator only, he really was a genius of translation. And the drop of his words, whatever your religion or none, it doesn't matter. The drop of the words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was life, and life was the light of men. And when he moved to the sort of verse a verse, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the spe- peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. That's the thrum. Of very great English poetry and prose from then on, and he contributed more idioms to the language than anybody before or since Shakespeare. More new words, Tyndall more new idioms. Let there be light. Fell flat in his face. Let my people go. Signs of the times under the sun. To- on and on and on. Rise and shine. My brother's keeper. Used. Turned inside out. Played around with. We do them. We use them every day. We speak his voice every day. And when he looked for a job, he left. Came, he went to Oxford. He went to Cambridge because his great hero, Erasmus was at Cambridge. He missed Erasmus, actually. Erasmus had gone by the time he got there, but that's another story. And he came to London seeking employment. He wanted to have time and to get on with his translations. He was interviewed by a bishop in London, not the Bishop of London, but a bishop in London with people around reporting. Everything was reported on then. We have to think of that sort of state. Everything was reported on. So we have good evidence of certain things, certain things ecclesiastical. Everything was reported on, because it was the word of God and it was power. And he had this interview, and he was a resolute man, a mild man, we're told, except that he was absolutely detailed. And at one stage, the bishop, and you have to read this to believe it, the animal, he was calling him the most foul animal that you can imagine. And Thomas More later compared him to a wild beast, a vicious, the abuse, anyway. In the middle of that, Tyndall said, I will teach a plowboy to know the Bible as well as thee. Now that was fantastic because the plowboy in the Middle Ages was the innocent figure. He was the young, unblemished icon. Erasmus talked about this as well. He also tracked back to the apostles who'd come from the land and the fishing. He was somebody you idolized, somebody you looked up. He was the plowboy. That was one thing. But more importantly, the plowboy was illiterate. And Tyndall clocked that profoundly, and he wrote a Bible to be spoken, to be preached, to be understood by people who could not read, and that had the most profound effect on the King James Bible and on its development in the world of ideas and political action for the next 400 years. It was written for the illiterate Ploughboy, and look how he does it. Those idioms, let there be light, fell flat on his face. Signs of the times, to rise and shine. Look at the things, one or two of the things I read. The word was with God and the word was God. In him was life and life was the light of men. Every one of those words is a monosyllable. The simplest part of our language, the particle of our language, monosyllables. Monosyllable, monosyllable, monosyllable. So it could be easily understood, immediately understood, but such is his genius he can rift it with several meanings. And he, that carried through. That carried through to other translations. Oh, just to finish Tyndall's sad story. He self-exiled in his late 20s. Henry VIII set his bully boys and spies on him. So did the Holy Roman Emperor. Emperor he kept uh, shipping his stuff over. But just to show you how different it was. Printing was up there and he had good friends in this country. At one stage he sent over 6,000 Bibles in a ship to London, just down there at Southwark. And the Bishop of London, true, true bought all 6,000 copies, and burnt them on the steps of the old St. Paul's Cathedral over three days, as a warning. This is in the 1620s. This is the New Testament. So he went there to the Netherlands. He kept translating. Uh, Henry VIII had his great moment and decided he wasn't, he was a Protestant after all. Uh, But the spies weren't called off. Thomas Comrade made a little willow effort to bring Tyndall back, but he knew he couldn't come back. They were burning people like him all over the place. Anyway, they caught him. He was betrayed by an Oxford man, Uh, put in a dungeon, given a show trial. Just before he died, uh, he was strangled. Before he was strangled, he said, uh, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And then he was burnt to death over, we're told, Greenwood, which burns more slowly. And he was in his late 30s. He left us the greatest inheritance next to Shakespeare. And. It went through the centuries, there were many more translations and, and so on, um, different translations by different people, uh, Tyndall's translation was around, but I want to say now something quite important for me, and I find my notes because I didn't have, I've got it. Um, Tyndall not only fed into the faith, because everybody was copying his Bible, everybody was copying his Bible, he fed into our literature, and he fed into our language, in not only a profound, in a provable way. For instance, when Shakespeare went to church at Stratford-upon-Avon, he would have had to go to church, as you know, and um, every Sunday, he would have had the Bible at his school, that would be read to him, Bible, book, and he would, um, I mean, he would have the, the, book, the Bible at home. His father was well enough off, it'd be one of the books they would have. And he was a man of words, he was a boy of words, he was word-infested, over a muse of fire, of course he would have read it, of course he would know it. When I put this book out, somebody said, I said, well, talking about the relationship between King James Bible and Shakespeare, somebody said, well, King James Bible, 1611, Shakespeare died 1616, goodness me, no influence at all. What I'd said was that Shakespeare was influenced by what became the King James Bible. Influenced, profoundly influenced. Shakespeare would listen to something called the Geneva Bible. It was printed in Geneva, it was the best printed book of all the Bibles, clearest text, cheapest. He would have listened to that all the time. Now, here's one or two bits. There's only two lots. I've got masses, but I'll give two. In Genesis, 81.4% of the Geneva Bible, 81.4, let's call it 81, is directly from William Tyndall's translation. He did the New Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament. 81% is directly from Tyndall. In the King James Bible, in Genesis, 85% is directly from Tyndall. In Revelation, 93% 93% in the, t- in the Geneva Bible is directly from William Tyndall. And in the King James Bible, 92 and a half percent is directly from Tyndall. In other words, Tyndall became the King James Bible. And Matthew Smith acknowledges it in an introduction of the King James Bible. He said, we didn't try to write a new book, but make other books better. He didn't say that actually over 80% of it was Tyndall's book, but it, that w- is what happened. And it infused Shakespeare. And enthused Shakespeare. Shakespeare took references from 42 books in the Bible, names, stories, all the, and verses, and so on. Uh, and he also, let's to the pith of it, you can judge a writer by his metaphors. If you can trace his metaphors back, you can see the profundity of the influence. I just give two. Matthew, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? Hamlet. That's Tyndall, of course. Hamlet. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. Listen to those monosyllables. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. Anyway, one more. Um, Matthew again. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again in a play called (laughs) Measure for Measure. Death for death, haste still pays haste, and leisure answers leisure. Like doth quit like, and measure still for measure. Shakespeare absorbed that Bible as he would, absorbed the Geneva Bible. His work is infused by it. There are over 1,350 different references to the Bible in line and subject matter in Shakespeare. And then, where Shakespeare went, the floodgates opened, and English literature, literature in English, I mean, followed. John Donne, there are not so eloquent books in the world as the scriptures. Milton tried to rewrite uh, Genesis. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, the only book to match the Bible for sales, which over the last 400 years has been the best selling book that there has ever been. It was used in politics with John Dryden. Daniel Defoe, trained as a Presbyterian minister, rifts his book with the Bible, lifts it with quotations. You remember in Robinson Crusoe, when Crusoe goes back to the ship, one of the first things he brings back is the King James Bible. There's William Blake, you'll know all about that. Even when people hated him like Byron, the Bible like Byron, he couldn't stop quoting it. Shakespeare read the Bible every day, George Eliot, was a passionate Christian, and then the German scholarship of the time, which began to chip away at the idea of the Old Testament being a history through through evidence from geology and so on, and that the scriptures being the word of God through evidence from when they were written and so on. Her scholarship turned her away from belief, but her belief still rifts her books. Uh, Silas Marner could be a chapter in the Bible. The Bronte sisters. Saturated with the Bible. Dickens, there never has been nor ever will be a book like the New Testament, Tennyson's In Memoriam. And so it goes in America. The most famous opening line of any novel, call me Ishmael. Uh, Melville, Moby Dick. You had to know who Ishmael was. You had to know about Abraham. You had to know about Sarah. You had to know about Hagar, Sarah's slave. Uh, and, and her illegitimate, as it turned out, son. Hawthorne's David and ba- Scarlet Letters from David and Bathsheba. Uh, Grapes of Wrath*. John Steinbeck. 12 people, the 12 tribes of Israel, get on this truck to go from the desert, are led out of the desert to the Promised Land. And that is taken from, although Steinmet wasn't a Christian. He built on the Bible story and he built on the Bible language. And a few years later, with East of Eden, the double Cain and Abel uh, stories, he did it there too. And on it goes, Spire by William Golding, Beloved by Tony Morrison. And we come nearer our own day, and Bob Dylan's full of the Bible, uh, but also not near under the iconic poet of the 20th century, who people, whatever religion or non-religion, doesn't matter, looked to and saw the man whose breakdown in 1920 matched, seemed to match perfectly the breakdown of Western civilization after the First World War. He went to Margate, as you remember, to recover. T. S. Eliot uh, on Margate sands, I can connect nothing with nothing. He wrote. He was there, he put together this work to try to shore it up against the ruins. He became naturalized Englishman. You would have thought he, above all, would be someone who, to whom the Bible, for all sorts of cultural reasons and historical reasons, would be anathema. He's saturated in it. He's completely full of it. He became a church warden, uh, he went to his church, he took the collection, uh, and so on. His four quartets and I think are in deeply, deeply in the Bible. Uh, embedded in the Bible, Ash Wednesday, uh, you know, and he also, like, um, like Milton, tried to rewrite the opening of the Bible, this time in, uh, uh, in Choruses of the Rock. And like Milton, it was nothing like as good as Tyndall. So to come to the end of this section, the effect of the King James Bible in English is that it gave the English people permission to think rather than a duty to believe. And the place of the King James Version is that it was the medium through which that thought was liberated. Just imagine it. The people of this country, just imagine it. They would all these words all of a sudden, in their language. They could talk to each other. They couldn't dispute it, because they would have been thrown in jail. But they could di- in distribute interpretations. Cavities of the mind that had been yearning for expression were there, in sayings which could be challenged, in, Ideas in actions that could be challenged. It was an extraordinary liberation and that liberation drove so much That having the language to speak in the way that would allow you to assault any object Any castle any fortress that was in your way because you had the language and you had the authority And you had all this as it were on your side. It was explosive Henry the eighth Let's get a move on Henry the where he regretted uh having allowed the Bible to be translated to English towards the end. And he gave a speech to Parliament in which he was faceless, we are told, streaming with tears. He said he'd done a terrible thing. Because what would happen, he said, "That <laughs> terrible man, he's an awful man. Uh, uh, what would happen, he said, was that people would start to discuss it. They would argue about it in pothouses, he said. Even young boys would know about it. He said, this, this would happen. And he was right. <laughs> it did. And it went on for a very long time. Now, I'm on There's two massive things I want to address. <laughs> right. There's two massive things I want to address and try to slip in two or three other things in between. But the first thing is perhaps the most important. No, it isn't. equally important, the two big things. <laughs> I want to talk about slavery. For thousands of years, in every civilization of which we have an account, or any written account, there's been slavery. There have been men, women, Children, animals, slaves, sometimes slaves, animals. That's been, it It was part of the human condition. It was part of what we were, whether you were, of course, Egyptian, or Assyrian, or Babylonian, or the famous Greeks, or they were huge slave owners, or Romans, or our dear Tudors were slave owners and slave traders, there's been slavery all the time. African continent, Arabia, if we can call it that, India, China, everywhere, there's been slavery. We can look at it as well as one of the greatest stain on human, the humankind and human history. In the late 18th and 19th century, slavery was abolished. It was a fantastic thing that it was abolished. W.H. Lecky was to call it, I'll come back to that in a minute. It was abolished and it was abolished fundamentally by means of the King James Bible. This has been more or less wiped out of our history. And if we wipe out our history as a country, we can, It's to hand on, it's to accrete, it's what we are. I think one of the reasons we're wobbling about with no self-confidence, bob-bob-bobbing around, and yuck-yuck-yucking about all the time, is because we have lost the steadiness of the sense of the things that we did achieve. We're embalmed in the superficialities of the present. The King James Bible was fundamental in that. In three ways, there were three Bibles. The first of all was the Bible of those who held on to slavery. You could prove slavery from the Bible the entire time, and they did. Um, Canaan. Ham. I've sat a bit that's dropped on the floor. Uh, anyway, in the Old Testament, it is full of references to people being consigned to slavery. Cain was supposed to be, the mark of Cain was later thought to be the mark of slavery. Uh, The children of Ham were put into slavery. They're in and out of slavery the whole time. It's in the Old Testament. Anybody who wants to say God condoned slavery, at least didn't object to slavery, just has to look there. And in classical Greece. And the the men who defended slavery in the southern states of America, the intellectuals in the southern states of America, and there were they. They had two great pillars to rely on. They had evidence from the Greeks and they had evidence from the word of God. And they used that. And they felt they were unassailable. And then, there was the abolitionist case. That came largely from the New Testament, and if you don't mind me personalizing it for one moment, I'm gonna do it through William Wilberforce. there were others, there were Clarksons and people who, who surrounded him, a lot of people in this country, there were people over in the West Indies, there were people in America, the Americas itself, but it's here, it's in this country, in that place, in Westminster, where it started, and it's the key, and it really is. Wilberforce was a very rich young man, from Hull, went to Oxford, same time as a uh, young Prime Minister, misbehaved wildly, gambled, was in s- terrible clubs and that sort of thing. Uh, came to London, went on a European tour with a man who'd been his school teacher in Hull at a grammar school before his, his <coughs> aspiring mother had sent him off to a terrible boarding school. But this man is a brilliant teacher. Wilberforce had kept up with him and went on a European tour and this man converted him to Christianity. He was an extraordinary man this. He ended up as Lucasian Professor of Science at uh, a physics at uh, Cambridge, which was a post that Newton had held. Mathematics, sorry, at Cambridge, a post that Isaac Newton had held. And he came back, Wilberforce, and he'd had a conversion. People like to say it was a nervous breakdown. Well, why can't it just be a conversion? Um, <laughs> he spent the rest of his life reading the Bible and the New Testament every day. Uh, he devoted his wealth and his health, his considerable wealth and his health, to promoting the ideas which he thought were the best ideas in, in the world, which came from the New Testament, and he drove it through. And he brilliantly saw that to say, let's, aboli- let's abolish slavery, was off the radar. Nobody would know what you was talking about. You'd be called an eccentric little person. But to abolish the slave trade, you had a chance to get a wedge in. Especially if you were in the parliament that could do it, which is our parliament. Especially if your best friend was the prime minister. And especially if he had the money to pursue this campaign. And he started. In 1789, he made one of the greatest speeches, if not the greatest speech ever made in Parliament. It lasted for four hours. It's a little booklet. It's worth reading. It's wonderful. And he used the Bible. He used Galatians. Christ says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus in Colossians. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. And he used that. He also used research, people had, because all the slave traders are offshore in this country. Actually, the black people in this country then, in the end of, end of the 18th century, were free. They were not allowed, to, you're not allowed to have black slaves in this country. There's a big court case, which a man tried to bring a case against his black servant of his, that he was in fact a slave. It was thrown out. But this thing swirled around. In Africa, from Africa across to the the Caribbean, or the southern states of America, and the ships came back with other things. They left with other things, they came back with other things in the middle. They took the slaves across. And another thing, we uniquely blame ourselves for being the most terrible people in the slave trade. No, we won't. We're going away before we get there. And the slaves came from right in the Gulf of, Persian Gulf, they came across Africa, Chiefs were trading in their own peoples as slaves, tribe after tribe. There was a great slave route came over to the edge of the edge of the, African, uh, edge of the African continent on the west side. Then they were rowed out to these boats and a line of West European powers took them to America, taken off and the American, that mongrel people, took them all over the place from there on. So it wasn't just this strange business. Anyway, there we are. And he attacked it. And he did one fantastic thing. And the fantastic thing was he invited the Liverpool merchants to come to the commons. It was nearly 30% of our tribe, the slave trade, And he was telling them, it's got to stop. And he spoke for four hours so powerfully that we're told in the end they were weeping. Whether because they thought the game was up or because he was so powerful. We're not told that. And he drove it through and in 1807, Slave trade was abolished. And we put out the Royal Navy. This is when morality is seen to be at the, a force in politics, and it can happen, and it did happen. They put out the Royal Navy to stop other West European powers, taking slaves across the ocean. Again, it's Bible-driven in uh, and 1807. And then in 1833, slavery itself was abolished in this country, and then it rippled through the world. And of course, there's still slavery. It's all over the place, but nothing like, and it is not accepted, and it's not ordained and it's not part of what we think as a real human condition. Freedom is now replaced slavery for that. But there was another Bible. And this was perhaps the most important Bible of all. It was a King James Bible still. A group of young men from Oxford, the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield, went across to America. They became the Methodists. They were too enthusiastic for the British. They had English, Anglican church. They had 8,000 hymns. They sang, they clapped, they were kicked out. Um, and they went to America and they began to preach. George Whitfield could rally th- 30,000 people at a meeting up and down the, the eastern seaboard, the Wesley brothers, and they were the first people to go into the black communities, these English Oxford educated young men, and preach to the black people. Now, they spoke to them. They spoke to people who were illiterate, who were illiterate, but they had massive memories of how to contain their history in oral histories, as we know from the Celts. So these words came to these young, these men, mostly men, and they set up their own churches in the swamps, I've seen them, these churches. And they preached, they remembered the words they preached, and then some of them learned to read and write, and they read as well as they preached. And a flame was lit, which was extraordinary. Because first of all, all these different tribes were given one language that could bind them together, the language based on the King James Bible. And secondly, because it said in the Bible you can worship God through song, the songs came. The African songs melded in with the Methodist songs, then became something different again. Spirituals, gospel songs, what became the unique contribution of American culture, of America to world culture? So they had the singing, as well as the preaching, as well as the sayings, as well as the enjoyment. And thirdly, it was a political liberation. Because Moses uh, in Exodus. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And that was inflammatory. And these brave men uh, whipped up to let their people go. They crossed the river to the north. They fought (laughs) for it through the emancipation. And when slaves were emancipated, it was the black preachers because the Wesleyans got completely kicked out of the church when they ordained black preachers, black Baptists, black Methodists, and so on, which was out of order, as they thought, anyway. So they ran their own churches. And segregation, in many ways, worse than slavery, but it was, let's skip to Martin Luther King Jr. On the day that he was shot, that morning, he'd been preaching from Isaiah, that he would be taken to look down on Canaan, but not allowed to enter into Canaan, from the Bible. They drove it through, and that was the King James Bible. Yet again, and it still is, in many ways. Now there's two or three other things to say, but I haven't time. I wanted to talk, which I do in a book, about the impact of the Bible on modern science in this country, on, for three centuries, not, they didn't get, these people like Wren and Hook and uh, Boyle and Newton and later uh, Priestley and then uh, um, um, uh, Faraday and then Clark Maxwell, They just didn't read the Bible on the side, it was part of them. It penetrated their minds, and who knows what the interaction is in one's mind between one body of knowledge and another body of knowledge. And they took it forward extraordinarily, in this way. Martin Rees, I've mentioned him before, I was talking to him about it, I think I've heard him in the book, I can't remember. And he said the reason these scientists found an order in the universe, the reason that they wanted a first cause, was because they wanted the Bible to be like They wanted nature to be like the Bible. Their great instructor was Francis Bacon of the court of King James I, who said, you can know the history of the world through two books. The book of nature and the book of scriptures. Interrogate both of them and bring them together. And that's what they were doing. They were driven in their idea. They were driven in their idea of what the universe should be like by words, by works that came out of the Bible, and there's that. And then there's a women's movement in the 19th century. You don't read now in the women's movement, people like Octavia Hill, started at 14, running a toy shop in the east end of London. Eventually, was one of the founders of the the National Trust. Years and years later, opposition, the slum sisters, the Bible women going into these slums with a Bible and a bucket and a mop, you don't hear of them. Uh, You don't hear of the Bible in what they did the suffragette movement. You don't hear of the way that their their Bible work became social work, became political social work. Josephine Butler, a very upper class woman, complete Anglican, cousin of of Earl Grey, the prime minister. She set herself the task of abolishing child prostitution and away they went, driven by the Bible. Would they have done it without the Bible? I doubt it very much. Finally, the other big thing that's happened in the last 400 years, which again I think was Bible driven, was the advent of modern democracy. I'm not talking about, Nemosthenes and Pericles. I'm talking about modern democracy. That in which we live. That in which people want all over the world. It's bad, it's all, but Churchill's right. It's better than anything else. And it is what we as a people on the whole keep coming back to that we, you know, and go forward with. And the Bible drove that too. And the King James version drove that too. And that too had a great deal to say to originate here in this country, and again, that's been wiped out. It's all to do with economics and politics. Well, that's part of it. But what happens is ideas driven through with passion, ideas that impress people to do things, and the Bible was full of that. Let's cut to the chase, I'm afraid. I'm going straight to the British Civil Wars in the 1640s, thought of as rather floppy spanieled cavaliers and funny-hatted roundheads having a go at each other. Per capita, that was the greatest, a greater slaughter of men than in the First World War. It was a bloody, bloody, bloody battle in this country, on the fields in this country, Naseby and so on and so forth, you know about that. And what were they fighting for? In essence, of course they were fighting for representation. Of course they were fighting against the king, King Charles I's authoritarianism, yes. And of course there was a... yes. But they were fighting because they had a really serious, a terrible dilemma. They had got a king who believed he was divinely appointed. His father, King James I, he of the Bible, had written a wonderful book called The Divine Right of Kings, a brilliant book, he was a brilliant scholar in his way. And Charles, his son, absolutely took it on, as everybody did. As I've said, pharaohs did, Roman emperors did. They thought they were divinely appointed. King Charles said, "Uh, God speaks only to kings and only kings can speak directly to God. He believed that. And these men wanted him to go. Wanted to get rid of it. Wanted a completely different state. They feared him. They feared his Babylonian tendencies. Babylon being a term. Many of the great Presbyterians had fled to America, especially in the 20s and 30s, the 30s when Charles came in. One of the most two or three literate diasporas that there's ever been. Set up the eastern seaboard. Began that area of development in the United States. God is leaving England, they said. And so they went too to follow him, to New England. Charles was divinely appointed. What did they do? What they did was they tried to find justification through the Bible. For when, it had started early, when Charles married a Roman Catholic, they said, an abomination is committed. Judah hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. And Charles hid back from the Bible. The authority of obedience unto kings is clearly warranted and strictly commanded in both the Old and the New Testament. There it is said, where the word of the king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what dost thou? And in the great hall, over there, the great hammer hall, they brought him to trial. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. A king brought to trial. A divinely appointed king brought to a real trial. Common law, contract law, and the arguments through the Bible. They're trying to find justification through the Bible. Just as in the American war, uh, the war between the states, 130 years on, in the tents at night, they argued not so much about tactics, but whether, what justification can they find? They brought him to trial. They had a jury. They argued through the Bible. He was tried. A divinely appointed king was tried by a jury. He was found guilty. He was executed three days later. And a ripple went through the world. Things had changed. The law, the people, had overcome the divinely appointed king. It paved the way for the enlightenment. It paved the way for all sorts of things. A few years later, literally a few, three or four years later, a lot of those men who were in that hammer hall went up the river to Putney and started the great Putney debates in which democracy developed, over to the, their friends and often the relations on the Eastern Seaboard, the Presbyterians who were driving a lot of this. They started to take it into their assemblies, and their assemblies were not just running the religious side of their affairs, very strictly as we know, but also developing into society. If they can do that, why can't they move on to the next piece of thing? And it developed there. And it came through people's conviction that they would find justification in the Bible and that the Bible would show them the way to do the most extraordinary thing of all, ex- execute under law, under common law, a divinely appointed king. And when Obama came to that hall, a few months ago, you might have seen him on television, in that same hall, I hall, mean we went in, you know, and uh, there he was, this black man, giving a speech about democracy, a good speech. And I wanted to say, down there, from where you're standing, just down there, was where a divinely appointed king was executed under law. If there is one seed time for the beginning of modern democracy, a change in the way the whole state and constitution operate, if there is one seed time, and there often is, this one moment, the shot at Sarajevo and so on, then it's there, where you are, and it was done here. And if you turn around and go up those stairs behind you, turn left and on the right, there's the House of Commons, it's a new House of Commons now, it was burnt down, in, but it's the House of Commons. That was where William Wilberforce, a young Englishman who broke his health and lost his wealth in order to drive through the abolition of the slave trade and then of slavery. And that happened through the Bible. And across the road, this time it was a road, across the road is Westminster Abbey where King James VI of Scotland became King James I of England and then a few months later, authorised the putting together of a new Bible, which went around the world. Became known in your country, Mr. President, as the King James Version. And what you wanted to do was to pay allegiance to that Bible in a way that meant massively to you uh, and signified for people who knew where you were, and your hero, is Abraham Lincoln, the uh, emancipation, president at the time of the Emancipation of the Slaves. And so the photograph taken of you when you swore in as President of the United States is a photograph of you putting your hand on a book. And the book is Abraham Lincoln's copy of the King James Bible. Thank you.